0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keenom, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 17th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you, broadcasting from the fair city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's San Francisco you can describe as many things, but the one thing I think would be wrong to describe it as is as a a shtetl, uh, one of those small little towns or villages in Eastern Europe that were destroyed uh, uh, by the Nazis. So we're going to talk about shtetls today, uh, American shtetls, actually. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I had the brilliant young... um, American writer, polemicist Dara Horn on the show. Um, she believes very strongly uh, that uh, we've come to, people have come to love dead Jews. She's very critical of a, a fetishization of all the Jews killed during the Second World War. She writes a book about reports from a haunted present and she's also um a novelist of the interwar period and of the yiddish period she writes uh fiction about uh the shtetls that were destroyed uh by the nazis she brings it back to life i think for me at least the destruction of east european life and the shtetls in particular uh, the yiddish speaking small towns of eastern europe of poland of, uh, of the pale was the greatest of all tragedies in the second world war when you go to yad vashem the uh, museum in jerusalem commemorating uh, the holocaust uh, there's a remarkable um, there's a remarkable quotation at the beginning of the exhibit which speaks of this lost world, a world that we can never quite recover, the world of shtetls, of small towns that uh, dotted all of Eastern Europe. Uh, A shtetl, as I said, according to Wikipedia, um, is somewhere between a larger city like Lelabov and a uh, a village. So it was all those small towns dotted through Eastern Europe that marked Jewish life, many centuries of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. We are talking shtetls, though, today. There is one, a remaining one, a very unique story called Curious Noel in upstate New York. And there's a really interesting new book out about it by Princeton University Press. Two authors, Nomi M. Stolzenberg and her husband, David N. Myers. Uh, Nomi is joining us from uh, USC, uh, where she teaches law. Uh, Nomi, this idea of an American shtetl, it's a remarkable story, isn't it? its I'd never, I have to admit, I'd never heard of it. I guess it's not that well-known outside New York. Um, how, how, how did uh, there come to be an American shtetl at, at state, New York?
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, the story really is a story of the aftermath of what you just described you know the the horrific devastating totalizing destruction of of the culture of the shtetl and more broadly of of the culture and the physical existence of uh european jewry um so this is a community that originated um in in the Transylvania region where um the and uh
0: for, 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 for the borderlands are not with uh Transylvania, the lands between Hungary and Romania, mostly part of Romania now, but historically part of Hungary.
1: Absolutely. So um before World War II, this was a region of um, intense Jewish uh you might say creativity, although paradoxically, some of that Jewish creativity um, was very invested in resisting any kind of innovation. So in this region where, where you know, Hungary, Romania, Central Europe, this was really the, the birthplace of Hasidic Judaism, um, which was a very intensely spiritual, form of Judaism that was really devoted to resisting the onslaught of modernity. This was before there was any question of resisting the onslaught of Nazism, simply resisting the erosion of traditional Jewish culture that was threatened by the modern
0: uh, Which normally was an age-old tension in these communities between, if you like, modernizing Jews uh, Jews who embraced the West and industrialization and integration and those that resist it. Many Jews wrote about it, Kafka mm-hmm. for example. So mm-hmm. it, it was a a profound, uh, a profound change to a world. and you're suggesting that the Hasidim were in a sense clinging on to a way of life that industrialization and technology was challenging.
1: That's absolutely right. But interestingly, in the pre-war period, prior to World War II, the the shtetl um, actually comprised both factions of Jews within it, right? Shtetls included both modernizers of very different kinds and the traditionalists who resisted modernization.
0: Yeah, and I think that this, um, uh, uh, Nomi, this point is one that Mm -hmm. Dara Horn really underlines in in her work. Firstly, that most European Jews weren't like Anne Frank. They weren't modern. They weren't from Amsterdam. They didn't write diaries in a sort of secular way. And secondly, that the Jewish communities themselves can't simply be uh, characterized in one simple way or another.
1: Absolutely. There was an incredible variety of forms of Judaism, of Jewish identity, some of which involved casting off any kind of, um, the, the, you know, there were secular forms of of Jewish identity. There were myriad forms of, of Judaism. That's what I mean when I say there was an intense creativity and inc- incredible cultural diversity among Jews of the shtetl. That is absolutely true, but all alike. I mean, those differences were of no consequence, of course, to the Nazis. So the community that we write about in our book, which formed this shtetl in New York, um, that community, which originated in this region, um, like all of the Jewish community in that region, well over ninety percent of it was ruthlessly murdered um, uh, in a very short period of time. Really, at the very end of World War Two. Right. So and, an
0: entire culture, as you say, was was wiped away. But there were some survivors, and the central character in your book, and indeed in the American statele, is a man called Joel Titanbaum. Tell me about Titanbaum. He's he seems a quite remarkable man on, on many different levels.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he certainly was. So Joel Teitelbaum, or um, as he was referred to in in the local Yiddish, um, Yol or Yoyl or y- Reb Yoylish, um, he came from a very impressive, really rabbinic dynasty of resistors to modernizers, right? Um uh, he came from a long line of ultra-traditionalists. Um, and he, in the period between the two wars, the two world wars, um, attracted his own group of followers. This was very much the model of Hasidism in Europe, that there, they were, um, there were charismatic rebbe's, and around an individual rebbe, uh, a, a band of followers would form and and grow um and uh this is what happened in his case it is, uh,
0: max weber german sociologist talked about charismatic leadership was he a, a, a classic charismatic from his wikipedia page Absolutely. Uh, they note mm-hmm. that he was renowned for his intellectual capacities from a young mm-hmm. age at his bar mitzvah mm-hmm. he delivered a sermon of several hours here was he was clearly a, a transfixed and transfixing character. Was there an element of, of, of a cult leader about him in a sense, do you think?
1: Well, you know, the word "cult," <laughs> um, what you know, what distinguishes a cult from a legitimate religious group? I think that's very much in the eye of the beholder. I think what we can say, going to your point and referencing Weber, this was he was the epitome. Of a charismatic leader. he He was regarded as spellbinding. Um people would say that when he when he gazed at you, when he looked you in the eye, that it would leave a, a physical impression that was a reflection of this piercing spiritual, uh, uh energy and goodness so he absolutely you used exactly the right word he transfixed many people he also yeah
0: funnily them. enough he even transfixed the great carol ii of romania who seemed to you be know,
1: uh, yeah, so, a, uh, yeah a a legendary meeting
0: of romania so there was something otherworldly i guess about this guy right
1: yes he certainly was regarded that way um and that led him you know before the nazis invaded. Um, to have begun to, already to amass an ever-growing group of followers. Um, and then as and I was how saying- did that,
0: How did that work, Nomi? Did you just sort mm-hmm. of attach yourself to the Rebbe? Did, did you say, yes. this guy's remarkable, I want to be part of well, his team, I want to follow him?
1: As essentially, yes. I mean, so this really reinforces the point we were making before, which is that the shtetl of Europe the shtetl of yore was the very opposite of a homogeneous community. First of all, Jews, a shtetl comprised both Gentiles and Jews within a single town. There was no such thing as a, as a exclusively Jewish or even predominantly Jewish shtetl. They were, you know, the the larger Part of the population of any given town would be Gentile. And the Jewish community, as I said before, had a great deal of internal diversity within it. So on the one hand, you could say it was very much, as you're suggesting, it was a matter of individual choice. There were many different kinds of Jews. Some gravitated to the what they felt was the um, compelling spellbinding force of a leader like, like uh, uh, Reb and the um, others. Was, um...
0: He, he was, um, was he the founder of the Satmar Hasidic dynasty or part of that?
1: No, he was the founder of the Satmar Hasidic dynasty, which takes so it he, he
0: was the man who ran the whole show. He, he began the, the Satmar dynasty, which was a kind of branch of the Hasidim. Is that fair?
1: Yes. All, so as I was saying before, in Europe, in the pre-war period, the the form that Hasidism took was precisely that there would arise, there were numerous um, uh, figures, not dissimilar from uh, Joel Teitelbaum, in that they were uh, perceived as being endowed with extraordinary spiritual charisma and spiritual um, leadership qualities. that so were sort the of Jewish women. version
0: of whirling dervishes, weren't they?
1: Well, there certainly was, that was a strong element of Hasidic culture, is that it, was, it? it defined itself in opposition not only to the modernizers, but it also, Hasidism also defined itself, as you just suggested, in opposition to traditional rabbinic culture, Traditional Orthodoxy, which was very focused on uh, uh, study on the on the rabbinic texts, it was a very intellectually centered um, right. so there uh, was version of Judaism. Music,
0: live, it, it was a much more live action thing, and of course, it it also resisted the cult of the land. One of the things that's most distinctive about. Hasidim and and title band was their strong opposition to Zionism, to the idea of attaching their identity and their faith to the land. So they've always been strongly opposed to Zionism, and that was another split alongside the tradition modern,
1: the mm-hmm. left right
0: split or the, the mm-hmm. communist socialist split, and then yeah. the, the the Zionist religious yes. split. So
1: yes so so
0: fascinating guy Fasc- and and you've done a beautiful job uh both in the book and here um you nomi know mean? bringing this man and this world back to life a life which and a world which has been completely lost because of the holocaust so but this is this is in itself an amazing story but then of course Titlebaum escapes the Nazis for complicated reasons we can't get into and arrives in America. So begins the second chapter, perhaps even the more remarkable chapter in his life. Um, I am speaking with uh, Nomi Stolzenberg, the co-author with her husband, David Myers, of American Shtetl, The Making of Kiryas Noel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York, which of course was founded by Joel Titlebaum. After the break, Nomi, I want to deal with this second chapter, how he came to America, and how he founded this American shtetl. So we'll be back everyone in about 60 seconds. Don't leave your shtetls, everyone. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other You can watch these shows live, uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. Page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We're back with Nomi M. Stolzenberg, the co-author of American Statel, a really fascinating book about quite literally an American shtetl that was transported, at least in a, in a kind of intellectual way, from Hungary, from the Transylvanian uh, part, at least, of Hungary, or which historically had been part of Romania, to upstate New York. So, Norman, let me hand it back to you. So this guy, Teitelbaum, arrives in America, of course. He flees the Nazis. He arrives in, uh, everyone can probably guess, Brooklyn, and he sets up shop there. But then he moves again, doesn't he?
1: Well, he didn't so much move as create a satellite. So as you say, he sur- he survived the Holocaust. He was one of a very small percentage of his community that did so. There are a lot of ironies. You were mentioning before the break his intense antipathy to Zionism, yet he was rescued by a Zionist. And indeed um, he first spent time in, in uh, Palestine uh, before arriving um, as you said, in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. So he ended up in 1946 uh, settling in Brooklyn. And there were at that time a relatively small number of other survivors of the Holocaust who also found their way to Brooklyn. Some of them, you know, a very, very small fraction of his community had survived and regrouped with him there. And, and other survivors who were really in search of, 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 of and spiritual and physical nourishment. Once again, people gravitated to him because he really did have this, this sort of force field. Um, and he built up the community first in Williamsburg. And he did, he, he, he remained in Williamsburg and had a a home there and presided over his community there up until the very end of his life in 1979. But from very early on, um, at least the 50s, and really it appears to have dated back his first expressions of this dream to recreate a shtetl outside the cities to find a place as it were in the country I mean really ultimately it was it was a suburban <laughs> uh, uh, enclave that he succeeded in establishing. Yeah, and,
0: and 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 this enclave which is the heart of your book this is the American Shtetl it's called Curious Joel and what's remarkable mm-hmm. is that he did in many ways he pulled it off he achieved it it's it's a quite remarkable accomplishment. How did he do it?
1: Well I'll tell you how he did it, but to emphasize how remarkable it is, I mean, let's think about what kinds of obstacles uh, uh, did he face? I mean, first of all, (laughs) the loss of the community and the way of life that he was trying to rebuild and recreate. But once he was in New York, first of all, in the United States of America, if you want to achieve anything of this sort, that is to say, if you want to have an enclave where your community can settle and live apart from everyone else, you need economic resources. You need capital. You need money to be able to purchase real estate. And what makes this very remarkable is his community per capita. The Sommers, the followers of Joel Teitelbaum are very poor by some measure. uh,
0: According to Wikipedia, again, the, um, the the highest, uh, according to the two thousand eight census figures in Curiochnewell, is that uh, the village has the highest poverty rate in the nation, which is quite an achievement given how <laughs> poor some parts of uh, some some towns and villages in America actually are. There must be That's intense right. poverty there. Uh,
1: well, yes and no. So by you know objective measures and by the measures of the census, all of the above is true. Um, that's partly a function of the fact that, you know, this is this is a community that um, at least, you know, th- on the theological level, they renounce the pursuit of material success and material wealth. They elevate the spiritual over the material. There is no they, they and, and they also renounce they don't want to be exposed to or, or participate in secular culture. So for all of these reasons, the desire to insulate themselves and separate themselves from the broader society and the elevation of spiritual matters over material ones, um, it is frowned upon, to say the very, very least, to pursue higher education, um, to pursue secular education, um, really only a religious education, um, an education the spiritual values. So. M- that's one reason why most of the families are, have low incomes. Furthermore, they have a very, very high birth rate. The biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply is one of the most serious uh, commandments that is very faithfully obeyed. So it
0: really is. Um, they've really successfully transported this lost world, whether maybe not entirely consciously. Uh, 91%. Uh, almost ninety-two percent of uh of people in Kiryas um, Joel speak Yiddish. Is that right?
1: That is right. the The primary language, and for some members of the community, the only fully fluent language is Yiddish. So, in many ways, you are right to say they succeeded in preserving, and transporting, and transplanting their old culture, certainly in terms of the language, um, the religious traditions and rituals, um, modes of dress, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. But in other ways, this couldn't be anything less like the European shtetl. Because remember what I said about the European shtetl? Yeah, that earth, that we Exactly. So this community actually is unlike any shtetl that ever existed. So, ironically,
0: but... Nomi, and this is what the um, the Jerusalem Post review of your book suggested. Uh, ironically, Curious Joel is is actually a mirror of America itself, with its obsession with segregation and identity.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, that is really the overarching thesis of the book, that it was really only in America. <laughs> That a, a Jewish community like this could establish an enclave that is as homogeneous um, and as politically empowered, right? They not only created their own private enclave by virtue of notwithstanding the poverty per capita, being able to sort of amass the necessary resources and money and capital to build and develop. Basically, a real estate development where where, uh, followers of the Rebbe could settle. But then they voted in complete accord with the procedures and laws of the state of New York. This is how municipalities, local governments get formed in the state of New York and the United States of America. How does that come about? Democracy, local democracy. Um, If enough residents in a particular area, sign a petition, um, and then put a proposal to form their own separate municipality, in this case, a village, a legally recognized village on the ballot, and then enough residents in the area, a majority vote, to approve that petition. So they have their own local government. No such thing. There, No, no Jewish shtetl. Had a local government that was run by, you know, a government. I, I of wonder if uh, Toc- well, he
0: didn't. He wasn't into books, but if you've read um, Tocqueville, he would have very much approved, wouldn't he?
1: Well, it is very much expressive of the features of American political culture. Absolutely, that Tocqueville drew, drew attention to. I mean, this is one of the ironies that, on the one hand, they. They oppose modern uh, ideas of, you know, liberal democracy. They want to live in accord with religious law that uh, does not, um, you know, they want to they they want to they want to follow the authority of the Rebbe. They don't want to run themselves internally as a democracy. Yet they were able to avail themselves of the mechanisms of local democracy that Tocqueville so praised, in order to create this enclave and this municipality? Yeah, I mean,
0: perhaps, perhaps, Nomi, it speaks to the fact that it, America isn't quite as modern as many Americans like to think they are, and actually that the roots of America and the culture of America are in many ways quite medieval. Well, medieval is
1: usually a code for certain things, so I would have to ask you what you mean by that, but I certainly think it is fair to say, and absolutely true to say, that if by modern we mean secular, (laughs) and if by modern we mean um, casting off tradition and traditional norms of behavior and traditional structures of authority. You're absolutely right that America has always been very, very hospitable to subcommunities that are deeply religious and deeply committed to traditional values and structures of authority and deeply opposed to the secularizing, liberalizing trends of modernity. Absolutely. I mean,
0: what was the narrative, or what is the narrative in Curious Joel as, as to the Holocaust? Was I know for some, him, and I, again, I, I have to be careful. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put words into their mouth. But mm-hmm. it was, in a sense, uh, 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 a punishment for modernity.
1: Absolutely. It's hard. I understand why you're hesitating. It's hard to say out loud. But... The the unvarnished truth is that Reb is that it, it, we spoke earlier about uh, Joel Teitelbaum's intense antipathy to Zionism, which he regarded as the greatest blasphemy and travesty, and his oft declared view, and it's very hard to hear and it's hard to say out loud, was that. The Holocaust was divine retribution that the Jews had brought this on themselves, most especially the Zionists and, and by the support for the Zionist cause.
0: I don't suppose that made him very popular in Israel, although there are many Hasidim in Israel. What, what was the response or what has been the response of curious Joel in Israel?
1: Well, you know, things are never black and white, and there and there are many ironies. So I mentioned before that, notwithstanding his intense antipathy to Zionism, he, after, you know, when the war ended, he first went to Palestine. And many, first of all, one has to remember, uh, this was this, you know most Orthodox Jews or many, um not only Hasidim, were anti-Zionist. But that did not mean they were opposed to living and settling in the land of Israel. It meant that they were opposed to the political project of establishing a Jewish state. So from their point of view, there was no inconsistency um, between their opposition to Zionism as a political project Mm -hmm. and the desire of many to live and settle in Israel, which, of course, was, you know, the major place of refuge for survivors. In
0: uh, neighborhoods like Meir Shearim in, in Jerusalem.
1: Yeah, so... so it's I a mean, wonderful that's... story,
0: Nami. I'm thrilled to, to have you on the show. And I and I uh, I, I know you're, a, you know, people will be thinking, oh, here's a historian or a professor of culture, but you're actually at the law school, and uh, your husband is a, a historian of... Um, of of, of European Jewry. And uh, so I I ought to just allow you to say, to talk briefly about the law and the curious way in which the American law enabled Mm
1: -hmm. the creation
0: of Curious Joe when it comes to all sorts of law cases and splits over the right to public school. It's again, a very interesting piece of the story, which I'm sure particularly interests you as a professor of law.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it turns out to be sort of making recourse to American law and making recourse to American courts, both to defend themselves from external challenges to the creation of their public institutions, the village. And then, as you just alluded to, they subsequently created a public school district within the confines of their village. So they they. Became very savvy operators in courts of law when they had to defend themselves against constitutional attacks on uh, uh, the creation or the operation of the village and the public school district. But there were, and then, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's the oldest story in the book. But when the Rebbe died, there was, you know, a classic succession battle who was the real heir to the throne? He left behind no male heir. Female heirs, you know that 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 was not recognized, um, and there has been since 1979 an unending battle and feud, and ultimately. Yeah, this content.
0: guy J- Joseph Waldman uh, shows up a lot in your book. He
1: Joseph he Waldman is one of the most outspoken of the Curious Joel dissidents. So by the really beginning in the 1980s, and um, a a full-blown dissident movement arises within. So again, what looks very homogeneous contain a lot of internal diversity within it. So the dissident movement that arose within the village of Karius Joel, um, they had no problem with the anti-secularism and the traditionalism. And their problem with the village is they thought that it was making too much concessions to modernity, yeah. that to participate in local governance, American-style local governance, um, was a you know was not being separatist enough yeah. and not being spiritually pure enough. So the fights between the dissidents and the establishment party in Curious Joel also got played out in courts of law. So what I was saying before about the obstacles that had to be overcome in order for the village to arise and flourish as it has, and then for a public school district to be established, one I said is, how does a community that's so poor get the necessary capital, which they succeeded in doing? And another seeming challenge was, well, wait a second. In the United States of America, we have a Constitution and we have a First Amendment, and one of the clauses in the First Amendment says there can be no state establishment of religion, which had long, although had long been interpreted as embodying the basic principle of separation of church and state, or separation of religion and state. So the many, you know, both dissidents within the community and people outside the community. Who looked askance at the cre- at the Somers creation of their own local yeah. government?
0: I knew and you'd was- get the uh, First Amendment in. You'd slip it in, Nami. Uh, I know you're about to teach a class at USC on it. So uh, yeah. once a lawyer, always a lawyer. I know you you dedicate this book that you wrote with your husband, um, David Myers, to your three daughters. Very briefly. It was a huge undertaking, a massive book, a wonderful read, many years of research, a loving project. I don't know how you could work with your husband or wife on it. I presume your marriage is stronger now than it was, or at least you're still married. But um, what, very briefly, would you like your daughters to learn from the American shtetl? Why do you dedicate it to them, the three girls?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I'm assuming you're not Hasidim. I mean, you're not trying to convince them to go and live in, curious, Joel.
1: They're not, but you know what? First of all, I'm smiling because our our three amazing daughters, who now range in age from 21 to 31, cannot remember a time when we were not working on this book. That's how long we work. I mean, I, I, I began studying this community the year our second daughter, who's now 27, was born. No, we are not Hasidim, but like many, if not all Jews, We live with the tensions between modernity and secularism and the values of individual autonomy and individual choice and freedom and equality and integration and treating all people as as fellows, regardless of race, creed or color, et cetera, and the value of tradition the value of preserving at least some aspects of the, the the way of life, the cultural traditions, the beliefs, the language of our ancestors. Uh, we spoke briefly about
0: this. How would you feel if one of your daughters brought home a charismatic like Joel Turtenbaum?
1: Titlebaum. <laughs>
0: Titlebaum, <bound>, sorry.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's a perfect example of how Uh, And I think this is not just a dilemma for Jews, but for most people, we have to manage the tension between our respect for the value of individual choice. I would like to think that my daughter's partners, that is for them to decide and not for me to judge. On the other hand, I think as parents, there's a part of us that always, you know, Might have a hard time with a partner. Yeah, yeah, on the one hand, on the other hand,
0: Nomi, that's what you teach in law school, isn't it? Very, very diplomatic response to that question. But it's a wonderful book. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations to finishing it and still being married to your husband. Uh, That's in itself an achievement, but it's a fascinating story. I didn't know anything about it. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I think it fits very much into the conversation we had last week with Dara Horn, the two sort of sides of the experience of of, particularly of European Jewry. In addition, um, Nomi, to your new book, American Shtetl, what else should people be reading in mid-February 2022? Any suggestions on further reading for our Lit Hub audience?
1: Well, I'm taking your invitation to share books that I've read and loved recently that have nothing to do with the subject of my book. I have to say, on the suggestion of uh, one of the aforementioned daughters. Um, I really, really enjoyed reading Madeline Miller's books, The Song of Achilles and Circe, mm. their, their adaptations of of, of Homer. Um, they're, they're just absolutely marvelous. I would say The Song of Achilles is one of the most gorgeous and piercing love stories I've read in a, in a very, very long time.
0: Wonderful Um, suggestion, Nomi. Anything else?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I I can recommend a book by my dear friend and colleague, Ariella Gross, that's called Becoming Free, Becoming Black, that she also co-wrote. Her co-author is Alejandro de la Fuente, um, which looks comparatively uh, at um, the legal regimes uh, uh, defining race and freedom and unfreedom uh, in the United States and uh, and in Cuba. Oh, um, interesting
0: stuff. Well, we'll have to get her right. on the show. So finally, uh, Nomi, we're, we're asking all our guests this all-important question to finish off the shows these days. Who runs the world? Nomi M. Stolzenberg, co-author of American Statel?
1: Mm, that is a really juicy question. Here's what I'll say. I think that we cannot understand where power lies and what the power struggles are if we fail to recognize the strength and the ongoing theological battle against secularism and modernity that I have touched upon in my earlier comments in in the west in europe in america that is a largely christian led movement right the christian right so you know i think many other people might answer that question by pointing to the 1% of the 1% of the 1% that owns almost all of the world's wealth the oligarchs 100% true other people will hasten to um characterize the, the 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 racial caste aspect to to but all of that is important but we really miss something equally important if we don't recognize how powerful the christian led religious right battle against secularism is and that's a very 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 long centuries old battle but you know something I think too few people paid attention to. You could really, of course, from their point of view, they're the underdog, right? They see themselves as the victims, as 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 the oppressed. They are being oppressed by the forces of modernity and secularism. But the fight that that literally reactionary fight um, uh, is being prosecuted with incredible vigor. And if you look at the appointments Trump made in his administration. Everyone looks at the judicial appointments Trump made, but look at well over half of the agencies. Who was staffed to run them and staff them very deliberately? Basically, Christian right crusaders. Um, And I think we need to uh, uh, pay much, much more attention to the shifts in power. that are occurring and the networks, the Christian conservative networks that are uniting these, um, you know, battles against secularism and modernity. Yeah, and
0: Nomi, uh, um, Stolzenberg, um, your your book, American or deals with this, but not in the Christian, but in the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. which is equally interesting and runs in parallel to what you're describing. So a real. Thrill and honor to have you on the show, Nomi. Uh, I'm not suggesting you rewrite American Statel. It already took you too many years, but I'm sure you've got many other things to talk about, and we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Keep well. And again, congratulations on a fascinating project, American Statel. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.